Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am LaRae Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We are starting today with a personal story from Lydia Garcia. I'm Lydia Garcia, and I'm a CSH Speak Up Advocate. I was raised in Burbank, Mexican family. My great-grandmother is Yaqui, a native from Sonora, Mexico. My great-grandfather was German and Spaniard. So I was raised with a mixture of both. But my family, they always looked down upon the native side of us. Anytime you have a bad temper, oh, it's the Indian in you, or if you're doing anything that was negative was the native part of us. And then the positive part was always the Spaniards. And so the culture of my great-grandmother wasn't there, but I've always had it in me, my own beliefs inside. I found out later that was traditional Native American belief. When I was nine years old, my mom and dad divorced. My two brothers went with my dad, and um, my sister and I went with my mom. But my sister didn't like my mom, and she decided she wanted to go to court and say, I don't want to be with my mom. So she ended up going with my dad. So my three older siblings stayed with my dad, and I'm the only one that stayed with my mom. And I didn't even get to take my toys or anything. It was just her and I in our clothes, and we went and lived with my grandma. And I played with a headless Barbie. I was just like always entertained and I used to make clothes for her. And my mom felt so bad that, you know, after we got our apartment, I had a bunch of Barbie dolls and stuff. I was pretty much raised on my own. And it was just me and my mom and my mom worked all the time. I was a latchkey kid. I just knew I'd wake up in the morning. My clothes were laid out. I knew after Yogi Bear, I go to school and the school was right across the street and that's the only thing I, I remember being a kid at 9, 10, 11 years old. And then at, when I was 12 we moved to Tustin in Orange County. I went to junior high and high school over there. It was tough. It was crazy. It was, you know, being a new kid, starting all over. It just seems like that's most of my life. I started really young, starting over. When I was nine years old, I was put on diet pills. My mom took me to the doctor instead of enrolling me in any school activities or um, dancing. So she took me to the doctors and he prescribed me diet pills, which is basically speed. And then from there, when I was 10 years old, out of sheer boredom, I started smoking cigarettes. And then by the time I was in high school, there was always a gallon of vodka in the house. So I started drinking in high school. My mom was always working and she was never home. Uh, so I had all this time to myself. So I just basically did whatever I wanted. And my mom was a hard worker, but I thought everybody's mommy drank a six pack before they went to bed. And my mom was an alcoholic, but she said she's always a functioning alcoholic. And as a result, I became a functioning drug addict. Before that, I was working with the county of Los Angeles. I did 10 years, so I was basically a wife and a mom, and I went to work and came home and just take care of my family. It was just a normal life, really, and just go to work. I was going to work, and I was trying to, like, rise up in the branches of the county. I was trying to be a manager, manage my own little office, and so I wanted to retire on the top. So my husband and I would go traveling. We wanted to go get an RV and then travel. I figured we can go do the powwow thing or do the something, you know. And when 
2006, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and that's where everything just went downhill for me. So that's life before he died was great. I had a life and had a purpose, but when he died, it just, because I, I made it with him that the sun rise and set on him. And that was like the worst mistake ever in my whole life, because when I lost him, I lost myself. After my husband died, I would fall asleep and I'd dream about him. It was so vivid that when I wake up, he died all over again for me. So I just didn't want to go to sleep anymore. So I started taking uppers and I started smoking meth. I started hanging out with other people that were doing meth, other drug addicts. And then what slowly, I lost the place where I lived, my vehicle. And I was started bouncing around on couches. After I went from couch to couch, I ran out of couches and I found myself in a park um, in Pacific Palisades. And I thought two weeks at the most that I'd be there, and it turned into two years. I got sober because it wasn't convenient enough to get high outside. To me, I had to be in a safe place because it's illegal for crying out loud. So I quit smoking dope outside, and I just, after a year, I'm like, hey, I'm sober. This is cool. So then I started staying sober. So then that's when I started going to the library more and started looking up more of so I started reading books and trying to find myself. I went through Buddhism, Taoism, Totec, and then I found the Four Agreements. And then I kept reading more, and then I found uh, Black Elk Speaks, and that was a very good book. Everything that they talk about with the Native American beliefs that everything on this earth is alive and everything is sacred, and you walk in a sacred manner. So I learned how to embrace that, something that's always been inside me, that to me, everything's alive, the birds, the grass, trees. I embraced that because I had more answers than questions when it came to the traditional Native beliefs. I started learning totems about different animals that represent certain characteristics and that the Natives would use, like they have the bear, the wolf, and all, but each animal and each insect is a message from each one, and it goes by how that animal or insect lives on this earth and how they survive, how they raise their young. And so I started studying that and learning more about Native ways and learning about the medicine wheel. So I've learned a lot. Each teaching that I've learned, I find comfort and, and the strength to go on. I always said that I have patience of a spider. And for me, a spider, she's beautiful, and she creates her home wherever she wants. She makes her web, and she's always working on it. So I always said that. I have patience of a spider. And then when I started looking up totems, and I found out the spiders about communication and about the eight legs and infinity and the body shape of eight, she helps me create my words and communications. So when I started learning that, then I started getting more into it, and I felt comfort in it. I was in the park for two years. I started going to a place called Women Daybreak, and it was an outreach just for women that are on the streets. And it was from 9 a.m. to 2. You line up and you get, they ask you if you want showers or if you want your mail or if you want services or clothes washed. So I only went for there for a meal, wash my clothes, take a shower, and I'm out of there at 2 o'clock, go to the library. I did that for two years. And one day a caseworker came up to me and said, Lydia, you've been coming here for so long. Why don't you tell me your story of you know, what's going on with you? So I did. 
And she cried and I cried and she hugged me and she said, Lydia, you don't deserve to be sleeping out in that park. And that really touched my heart because I, in my inner monologue, is saying that I deserve this because I was the drug addict. I was the one that made bad decisions. And so when she told me that, I was just so touched. And she said, I'm going to look for an uh, emergency bed for you. And within two weeks, I was in the emergency bed at the shelter at Cloverfield. And emergency beds are there for two or three weeks. But if they see that you have a caseworker and you're working with your caseworker, they have another part of the center that's the shelter, so you get your own cubicle. So I worked with my caseworker, and I set out certain goals, and I achieved them, and they saw that I was potential, so I stayed on the shelter side. And then I started going to groups. I went to an anger management class. I went through um, life skill classes. And then I applied for another program through the Department of Health Services, Step Up, and Brilliant Corners. I didn't think I was going to get it because like two or 300 people there, most of the people at the shelter that were there were like, oh, I'm going to get it. I'm shooing for it. And I'm like, okay, you know, seeing is believing. So I just kept going my way and just keep looking at other places. And one day when I went to look at a place in San Pedro, I came back and then they told me, Lydia, you have the step up on it. You're going to get move in on July 31st. And I was just so happy. I'm like, oh, great, you know, because you just keep trying. It's really hard when you're in the shelter and there's certain programs come up and certain programs go by and you qualify. It all depends how long you've been homeless and uh, what's your mental health. And I qualified for where I was going because I went to a county facility for treatment and that was when I went and got my teeth done. Um, that's what got me to be in the program that I'm in that would qualified me. It was a long time waiting because I was there at the shelter for almost a year and a half, but I did do my manage saving management there, so I had a little pocket money by the time I moved into my apartment to help furnish. The apartment was furnished and everything, but just little things that I could get for myself. You do get a little hopeless when you're waiting at the shelter and you see other people that just got in two months ago and now they got a place and it's over there by Union Station or it's somewhere around, you know, and like, huh, what about my time? When's my time? You don't realize that that person has been waiting just as long or longer than you. They don't just walk in. A lot of people get the impression they walk right in and they get their place and they're out. Their favoritism, they're doing this, that. No, it's just... If you learn how the program is and each programs that are out there, it's just wait, hurry up and wait. And you got to really have patience. And that's what I try to tell people when they're still at the shelter. I have a girlfriend that's still there. And I just tell her, you know, just wait, hang in there and look at whatever they give you. And just something will come through. You just have to wait and have faith and hope. So I moved in on 2015. So I've been there uh, four years now. I moved in there in July, and it was amazing. Half the people I knew were from the shel same shelter, so all my neighbors were people that I already knew from seeing or uh, having dinner with them all the time. We all moved in. It was a turnkey thing. All you had to do was just bring your clothes. They had a twin-size bed. They had cooking ware, flatware, everything up for your... I have a little kitchenette, no oven, just two burners, and that's it. And I have a refrigerator, nice bathroom. And it was just amazing. I couldn't believe that was my place, that this is mine, that I landed. This is for me only. I can pay the rent. You know, that was the main thing. 
And now that I have supportive, I have a caseworker who helps me out a lot and we set goals and everything. So I'm in supportive housing with Step Up and my caseworker's the best. She'll take me grocery shopping or we'll go to the pantry or if I just want to chit chat with her about what's going on with me, she's always there for me and I just love it. And, and one of my biggest fears when I was in the shelter was, am I going to go back? Am I going to fall off the wagon and start smoking meth? Because I'm going to be in four walls by myself for the first time in so many years. The temptation was there, but my sobriety means so much to me more than, than my addiction. I dream about it every now and then. I go to therapy for that because it's really scary when you're thinking, oh, I just messed up my sobriety in your dream. You know, it's like, oh, no. And I wake up, oh, wait, that was a dream. It's not real. I am currently have therapists, and I'm under doctor's care, and that really helped me out a lot. I was like, I don't want to be on meds. And she's like, well, if you're a diabetic, wouldn't you be on insulin? I mean, it's the same thing. You're not producing enough serotonin or something that's going on in you. And so I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. And now I'm on a, a good cocktail right now where I'm like, wake up in the morning and I'm just actually happy and I'm excited. Before I was just not excited about doing anything and then I have anxiety really bad and then I wouldn't go out. I'd stay in the house. I wouldn't shower and it's just a lot going on. And to balance that out and to keep going, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty rough. We are very grateful to Lydia for sharing her story with us. We're excited to have an interview with Ananya Roy today. Ananya is a scholar of international development and global urbanism. She is professor and Meyer and Renee Luskin Chair in Inequality and Democracy at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. As such, she is the founding director of the Institute for Inequality and Democracy, which leads important work on housing justice and for our local listeners, hosts fabulous events. Ananya, it is a pleasure to have you on our Housing Justice Podcast. Can you tell us about growing up in Kolkata, India, and how that shaped your thinking about justice? I'm so delighted to be on this podcast, to be able to talk about housing justice here in L.A., but also to think from elsewhere. So growing up in Kolkata, India, I was quite aware that I lived in a city where the majority of the population lived under conditions of extreme poverty. And yet, what has been a major crisis here in the United States, notably homelessness, was not the form that that poverty took. People were sheltered in all sorts of informal and transitional ways, and those forms of shelter were never as brutally criminalized as they are here in Los Angeles. So my work in Kolkata has been very much about various forms of displacement and dispossession, but it's also been about the mass mobilization of the poor in finding and demanding shelter and in insisting on a right to housing. Now, I don't want to romanticize the Indian case, there have been not only mass mobilizations of the poor, but there have also been mass demolitions and evictions. But one of the things that has always been striking to me in those contexts of extreme poverty is the long history of collective action 
by the impoverished. And their central role in the making of political futures in what is the world's most populous democracy. So that energy and those lessons learned from that collective action has always stayed with me and was an integral part of growing up in Kolkata. And those are lessons I still carry with me. How did that exposure to collective action translate into your path into academia um, and studying urbanism? So I've always been interested in understanding structures of dispossession and displacement, particularly state violence, but also the violence enacted by global capitalism. But alongside studying those structures, I've been interested in the many forms of contestation and resistance that undo those structures. I've been particularly interested in poor people's movements, and this is, of course, not just the story in India, but also the story in other parts of the world that I'm always eager to learn from, such as South Africa and Brazil. Now, the pathway of those poor people's movements is not necessarily linear. In places like Brazil and India, we've seen the return of right-wing authoritarian governments, And there is tremendous struggle ahead in those contexts. But I think repeatedly, I've had to think about the political openings that such collective action creates. And perhaps from my perspective, thinking about the role of academic scholarship in joining in those political openings, in what ways might our research and analysis be in solidarity with that kind of collective action and also learn from poor people's movements and the knowledge they produce. Can you just give some examples for folks of what that looks like in terms of how you can use the structures of academic institutions to really partner with these campaigns? In the case of the United States, perhaps one of the most lively moments of uh, poor people's organizing was, of course, the 1960s. And so while, of course, that was a moment of extraordinary racial justice organizing, quite a bit of that racial justice organizing and the fight for civil rights was tied up with various kinds of poor people's movements. A book that has always been influential for me is one by Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward, on poor people's movements. And they document the rise, for example, of the National Welfare Rights Organization, which while it existed was a mass mobilization by poor black women who insisted that welfare in the United States was not a handout by the government to poor people, but was a right. And their organizing greatly expanded access to welfare Academics, including Francis Fox Piven, played an important role in that movement. They played an important role not only by producing frameworks of poverty that were not demeaning to the impoverished, but they also played an important role in mobilizing their academic privilege and legitimacy in supporting these movements, not in leading them and establishing them, but in supporting them. What forces are driving people out of their homes in California? Thank you for asking that question, because I think too often questions focus on what will get people out of homelessness, and that is very important, of course. But I think that we must think about and talk about how people are being unhoused. So increasingly in my work, I've come to use the term the unhoused, and again, this is where I'm trying very much to learn from the lived experience of the unhoused, 
who themselves have been using that term. I think um, there are two issues that I want to highlight. One, of course, is a new configuration of financialized processes and structures, including the entry of large predatory private equity firms in the housing market. We saw that with the Great Recession and the devastations of foreclosure, and we're seeing it now with the buying up of rental housing by Blackstone, by Wedgwood, and the ways in which those models are not models of housing people and profiting from housing people. They are models of unhousing people, of financial speculation, of high rates of vacancy, of flipping. And so that is clearly a process that's unhousing people. And I should say that that unhousing is possible because these forms of financialization remain unregulated by our politicians. And that has to change. But I think alongside that and entangled with these forms of financialization are long-standing systems of racial discrimination and segregation here in the U.S. So while uh, restrictive covenants and redlining might no longer be legal instruments, I think there are a myriad new forms of redlining and exclusion. And one of them is the criminalization not only of the unhoused, but the criminalization of communities and bodies that are targeted on the basis of their race. Everything from gang injunctions to nuisance abatement to other forms of policing such as predictive policing that are all implicated in unhousing people. These are the public means of evictions and they too could be stopped. I'd love to get your thoughts on the amazing actions recently by Moms for Housing, because financialization of the housing market is this incredibly important concept for people to understand, and it's very difficult for people to get their heads around what's happening. And I think what Moms for Housing did was so powerful in that it exposed this force that's often very hidden in our communities and what it's doing to unhoused people and love to hear your thoughts about their actions recently. It is indeed an important case. Um, it's a case that unfolded in a city in which I lived for many, many, many years of my life and a city that has been dramatically transformed not only by gentrification but also by tech capital and by these forms of financialization. What the Moms for Housing case revealed was on the one hand, as you pointed out, these invisible forces shaping our city. So not very many people had paid attention to an entity called Wedgwood, um, which, by the way, owns many, 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 many properties in Los Angeles as well. Tara Graziani, who's the director of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project here in Los Angeles, did a wonderful capstone project in the Urban Planning Program at UCLA, from which she graduated last year, on Wedgwood. And Wedgwood's role in buying up properties and flipping them in Inglewood. So it's not just in Oakland. But what that story tells us is that Wedgwood's model is one of flipping homes, of evicting tenants, keeping homes vacant, speculating that property values will rise, and then being able to sell at a much later date. That they can sit on these swaths of property for years. And thus we have the heartbreaking paradox in all our cities, including Oakland and Los Angeles, that we have 
high vacancy rates often alongside high rates of houselessness. But I think the other piece that um, the Wedgwood Moms for Housing story reveals is the power of collective action. So that kind of home occupation, if we are to call it that, is unusual in the US, but it's not unusual in other parts of the world. One of the movements that I learn a lot from is a movement in Spain that emerged after the foreclosure crisis there. And that movement has been doing home occupations and eviction blockades for a very long time. A movement I studied and learned from on the south side of Chicago, the Chicago anti-eviction campaign, was very much focused on occupying homes that had been foreclosed by banks and that were lying vacant and, in fact, had been looted and almost destroyed. They had a beautiful motto that I was reminded of with the Moms for Housing case, which is homeless people in peopleless homes. And, in fact, they didn't call these home occupations. They called them home liberations. So I think we need um, new meanings of property and property rights and property ownership. So the Moms for Housing case, I think, very much brings that to our attention. What would you say is happening in the communities of color in California? I moved to Los Angeles about four and a half years ago and had the opportunity to establish the Institute on Inequality and Democracy, but also the opportunity to become a student of this city. And a lot of the research I've been doing at the moment has been on forms of dispossession in L.A. It's not what I'd intended to do. So much of my work has been outside the U.S. And I realized early on in that research, but also in learning from and working with movements such as the LA Community Action Network, that what is going on at the moment is not just gentrification, it's not just displacement. The language I've been using, but the language the movements have been using as well, is banishment, racial banishment. And what I mean by that, and Pete White of LA Can has this wonderful line, that displacement is when you have somewhere else to go. Mm. That you've been gentrified, you've been displaced, you have somewhere else to go. Banishment is when you have nowhere else to go. And he often adds, except jail or death. So when I talk about banishment, I mean a few things. I mean that the public means of eviction. So part of what our research tracks are the various state policies and programs, such as municipal ordinances, such as new public nuisance law, such as public housing evictions, one strike and you're out, so many of these, that have added up and are interlocking regimes of policing that are literally banishing people, that they cannot return to these communities. They're suffering a civil death and social death. But the second piece of this is geographic. One of my uh, pet peeves is that in the US, and especially in LA, we know very little about where the evicted and the displaced are being pushed to. There isn't systematic data collected on this, right? But we know from people's life stories that they're being pushed to Antelope Valley, but well beyond Antelope Valley, because they're facing a new round of policing and evictions there. We know they're being pushed to the Inland Empire. And when I've asked people, in fact, a group of houseless veterans recently, who immediately get the concept of banishment, where were you banished to, they'll usually say the desert, which is both allegorical and literal. So that is partly um, what I think is happening to communities of color in California, whether it be in the Bay Area or here in LA. I mean, it's a process of resegregation for sure, but I think it's something even more dire and violent. 
And there's tremendous profits to be made. So can you also talk about the idea, you've talked about racial capitalism, which I don't think is a term that most of our listeners have probably heard before. Um, So can you talk a little bit about this idea of racial capitalism um, and the profiteering that's leading to this? So I should say that um, in the phrase racial capitalism, the term racial is possibly redundant and that all forms of capitalism, the long history of capitalism, Um, has been entangled with forms of racialization, by which I mean the mechanisms through which some people are rendered subordinate on the basis of their racial identity. And the ways in which then an entire race of people is seen to be inferior to a ruling group. That has taken the form of colonialism, say in the part of the world I grew up in, In the United States, it's taken the form of slavery and it's taken the form of settler colonialism. So one of the things I like to do in my housing justice scholarship and in the work we do at the Institute is to think about why it might matter to think about housing in relation to racial capitalism. Other than a string of fancy words, why does this matter? And it matters because I think there is a way in which we can rethink a certain common sense around property around tenancy, around who owns what, who is entitled to what, once we keep in mind these long histories of slavery and settler colonialism. So here in Los Angeles, we are here on stolen land, land that has been taken from a people who remain unrecognized. So what does it mean for the powers that be to render people illegal on what is stolen land? What does it mean to fight for housing justice or for sanctuary on stolen land? But specifically in relation to housing justice, one of the pieces I love to teach my students, which I think clarifies this relationship, is around the instrument of foreclosure. So, so many middle-class Americans, particularly middle-class Americans who are African-American or Latino, experience the devastations of the foreclosure crisis. We like to think of foreclosure as something new, as part of the new forms of financialization. But scholars of indigenous studies, including an incredible scholar called Kesu Park, has shown us that foreclosure was invented in the 1670s as a part of settler colonialism. It was a tool used to steal land from Native Americans by driving them into debt, but by turning property into collateral. And this was not the case with British property law. So foreclosure was a uniquely American commodity, if you will, a uniquely American invention that was about the theft of land and the entire towns on the eastern seaboard that have been created through this kind of theft of land. But the moment we are able to reinscribe foreclosure as theft, as something illegitimate, we're able to show that its roots lie not in some rational financial system that we have now completely legitimized, but rather in what many of us would argue is the illegitimacy of that kind of colonialism, of that theft of land, of the genocide of indigenous people, then maybe we're not that beholden to foreclosure. Maybe we don't have to abide by foreclosure. Maybe we should think about expropriating foreclosed homes. Maybe those should have not been returned to banks and should not have been bought up then by Blackstone and other entities. Maybe that is public property that should be redistributed. So this is the ways in which I think a history of racial capitalism allows us to ask 
a broader set of questions in relation to housing justice. I'm curious, do you see a difference between the experience in India where there's been a widespread independence movement against colonialism versus a country like the United States where Brian Stevenson says slavery didn't end, it just evolved and continues to this day in mass incarceration. It hasn't been as widespread pushing against these forces. And does that change how they materialize in our current history in the United States as opposed to a place like India? Absolutely. At the Institute, we have an activist in residence program. We've had one from the very start since 2016. And this year, one of the activists in residence is Leonardo Vilches, co-founder of Union de Vecinos. And Leonardo, at the start of the program just a few days ago, talked about how his main agenda is to think about the possibility of land reforms in the United States precisely by thinking from parts of the world where independence movements were tied up with the question of land reforms. So the moment that could have been that political opening in the United States was, of course, the civil war and emancipation. But as we all know well, that property redistribution never happened. In fact, the opposite happened, that slave owners were compensated for their so-called loss of property. And so that complete failure, if you will, of reconstruction means that the United States is one of the few settler colonies that has never had a serious national discussion about land reforms. This is not to say that land reforms has been perfect in any way in other parts of the world. In India, despite some attempts at land reforms, there have been tremendous and continue to be tremendous inequalities in access to land and ownership of land. But nevertheless, the idea that land ownership, as it was constituted at the end of colonialism, whatever that moment is, is unfair, that it requires a redistribution, that has not been a national conversation until perhaps now when that conversation is happening in the framework of reparations. I'm interested in how the work of the university is being connected to advocacy in making that shift in the land use and how the pathway to housing looks different today? Well, partly what we've been trying to do in our housing justice network is to learn from other parts of the world where um, the conversations around land and around property and tenancy and housing justice might be different but also to think about whether we can support new imaginations and practices that allow us to think outside the box. So, of course, there have been important advances in thinking about the right to the city and right to housing, and that is work we want to continue supporting, but it all feels a little inadequate at this moment as we face a staggering crisis of inequality and a staggering crisis of unhousing. So one of the things that got me very excited in the Moms for Housing discussion and struggle was not only that there was a recognition that community land trusts have a role to play, therefore we can think about the collective stewardship of property, so these other imaginations of property, something that's collective, something that is partially decommodified, not fully. But I think that also what is at stake is who has rights to property and whether those rights are only rights earned 
because of private ownership or whether rights can be something that are deeper, that have to do with justice, that have to do with reparation, that has to do with redress. And I think what didn't happen, but I think the conversation has to go there, it's gone there in many other parts of the world, is the role of the state in whether that be through expropriation, whether that be through something else, in really thinking about how housing is a public good. It is a social good, it's a public good, and ultimately for me, the state plays a crucial role in ensuring that housing is a public good. So the work that I think the university can do and that scholarship can do is recover those lost histories of housing as a public good, of housing as a social good, and insist that that is possible again in this country. It was possible in the mid-1930s. It's possible again, for sure. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Berlin um, and the proposition that they're trying to pass in Berlin? So one of the reasons why I've been interested in what is going on in Berlin is that that is a city where the large majority of residents are renters, about 85% of the city is made up of renters. That's an unusual situation for us here in the US. But it also creates um, that sort of collective action, a mass mobilization. And Berlin has a long history of tenant unions and tenant movements um, that have mobilized repeatedly around the question of rent. They've pushed for a rent freeze. Um, The city recently passed a five-year rent freeze. But they've argued that despite having rent control and rent stabilization, now the rent freeze, housing has become unaffordable to the vast majority of renters. And so the movements have been able to put a referendum on the ballot that I think is an intriguing one that would cap the ownership of rental housing by any private entity. So in particular at stake is a large real estate entity in Berlin called Deutsche Wohnen that owns thousands of apartments in that city. Um, The referendum proposes that um, any entity that owns rental apartments above 3,000 units would face a confiscation and a socialization of those units, that those units would revert to the municipal government that would turn this into social housing. Now, the backstory here is that quite a bit of what Deutsche Wohnen owned was, in fact, social housing in Germany and was privatized by the state during liberalization. So it's precisely this memory that this was once social housing, it was once ours, that is also driving these tenant movements. I mean, it's interesting because you were talking about post-Civil War reconstruction and the opportunity we had at that moment where we actually went backwards instead of forwards in terms of land reforms. And it's hard not to wonder if we had a similar inflection point during the civil rights movement, where similarly post-civil rights movement in the 70s, we did the same thing where we literally, we didn't even privatize, we just took cranes and demolished our public housing like Cabrini Green. So it's just interesting to think about these inflection points in history and how reactive we can be and the legacy 
that we can see many years later in that period of liberalization and movement away from public housing and socialized housing and these models that were so important that we abandoned and didn't even just abandon, I mean, actively destroyed. Absolutely. So I get to teach the histories and theories of urban planning class to all of our masters and PhD students. And I often think that that is the most difficult thing I do all year because it is about identifying and thinking from these different political openings and closings that have happened all through the 20th century and now into the 21st century. I mean, in many ways, the urban crisis of the 1970s that leads to these massive structures and policies of neoliberalization, including the gutting of public housing, but the end of welfare, the privatization of public education, all of this stuff, right, has often been understood as a grab by economic elites. But if one looks closely at the language of the key thinkers and the powerful think tanks, right-wing think tanks, that shaped that moment, and the political leaders who were in power, it's a deeply racialized language and imaginary. So one way to read that is, of course, that it was a backlash against the gains of the civil rights movement, that in fact, starting with the New Deal and then all the way into the early 1970s, we see a set of social and economic gains around civil rights, around economic prosperity. All of that begins to shift in the 70s and 80s. We begin to see this massive gap between the top 1% and the rest of the country. But we also see a dismantling, a systematic dismantling of the gains of the civil rights movement and of the various economic gains that had been made by working class communities. I think people often miss in this crisis that we're having around homelessness that it's another inflection point. It's another moment in history, and it's easy to get very hopeless about how profound the crisis is, how many people are dying on our streets. It is a horrible moment, but at the same time, I spend a lot of time with elected officials, um, and they talk a lot about feeling helpless in the face of this crisis, and yet you know, as we talk today, there's such a range of tools. I mean, just having also gone through a fight over rent stabilization locally and, you know, people feeling like, oh, this is such this, you know, radical edge of intervention of the government and regulation. And yet it's just the beginning of what's possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say, without sounding naive, that this is a turning point. I think the country's at a crossroads, LA's at a crossroads. And I do think it's a moment of hope. And for me, um, the hope comes from a few different places. So for one, this is one of the reasons why the work we do at the Institute is not about the housing crisis, it's about housing justice. Because we think that that is the normative horizon that movements and communities are showing to us. So I do think that alongside the terrible worsening of the housing crisis, And this deepening housing precarity has been the rise or the return, I should say, of movements. The formation of powerful tenant unions and tenant movements at a moment when when California, but the country itself, has become what many have called the renter nation. Homeownership has always been a myth. That myth has now been exposed. 
it is quite clear, I think, to many different social groups that home ownership is out of reach. And if that is the case, then the shared experience of tenancy, of renting, that shared experience of being a part of the renter nation creates a solidarity that will, in fact, lead to more and more policies of rent control and rent stabilization, including what we've seen in New York and what is very possible in California. I think what we're also seeing is a new common sense around questions of who owns property, what the role of corporate entities might be, and the Moms for Housing case makes that clear. But I think we're also seeing a new national imagination around public goods, around public education, around public housing. So whether or not we are totally convinced with the framework of the Green New Deal, it is quite clear that that acknowledgement of economic crisis, the climate crisis, of a political crisis, is leading to quite interesting political leaders making an argument about the importance of housing as a public good, as a social good that, again, is not a handout, is not a gift to anyone, but is a right. And I think that there is a lot that can be done in cities like LA to make some of that real. One of the things that came up at the Housing Justice Summit that I think really resonated with a lot of folks in the audience was the issue of vacancies in LA. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of the scale of vacancies. So can you talk a little bit about that? So my understanding is that researchers at the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, SAGE, and other organizations will be soon releasing a report that details these levels and geographies of vacancy. But look, from cities around the world, and including cities here in the United States, we know that there are usually high levels of vacancy, particularly in the upper end of the housing market. One of the things I like to repeatedly state about housing and housing markets is that markets are segmented. There is no such thing as trickle-down anything, and there is no such thing as trickle-down housing. So building more luxury condos will not create affordable housing for those who are currently unhoused or those who are struggling to pay their rent. It's not going to happen. So recognizing that housing markets are segmented, we also then have to think about where that vacancy exists. Now, the assumption has been that the vacancy exists in the luxury sector. And this is the case in many cities. I spent a lot of time in Cairo, Egypt. And there were these vast apartment buildings literally flanking the River Nile that would be completely dark every evening. Because this was all speculative property. It had been bought up by Egyptians who lived abroad or by foreign corporations and was kept empty. The point was not to have anyone living in them. The point was to own property as investment or as speculation. So I've seen this in many parts of the world and that coexists with high levels of housing precarity and houselessness. But I think what's interesting about the Moms for Housing case and with a company like Wedgwood, which we don't know enough about, is that perhaps the vacancy exists in other segments of the housing market as well. That maybe what has been going on since the foreclosure crisis, which scholars of financialization have been indicating, is that these entities have been buying up large tracts of foreclosed homes and converting them into rental housing or sitting on them 
in order to either flip them or simply sit on them until their value increases. And if so, that's a very different conversation about vacancy. I think the conversation about luxury vacancy rates has to be a conversation around vacancy taxes and other means of regulation to think about the social function of property, which many cities around the world have done. But I think vacancy in other segments of the housing market raises the question that was raised in Oakland. Should people be houseless on the streets, dying on the streets, while homes in their own neighborhoods and communities lie vacant for no good reason? One of the other things I want to ask you about that we haven't talked about is criminalization of homelessness in L.A. And one of the things you've talked about is how our criminalization takes a different form than it does in other parts of the country. L.A. in many ways has become the ground zero, I think, of the criminalization of the unhoused and those who are precariously housed. The city has a long history of pioneering various forms of racialized policing and criminalization. So the more I've been studying criminalization, the more, of course, I'm reminded of L.A.'s pioneering role in such things as gang injunctions in the quite incredible forms of policing that the LA Police Department has been repeatedly able to invent and experiment with and get away with. So in many ways, um, as my colleague at UCLA, Kelly Lattle Hernandez, has shown, LA is the carceral capital of the country. We spend a huge amount of public money incarcerating people and surveilling them. But in terms of the criminalization of the unhoused, much of this is taking place through municipal ordinances. These ordinances exist elsewhere. They exist in other so-called liberal cities. Seattle has been another hotspot of these ordinances, but they're there in San Francisco. They're there in several other cities that we would otherwise think of as places with progressive politics. I think what we have in Los Angeles is an unusual combination of cruel ordinances and a willingness on the part of our elected officials to keep ramping up this criminalization and cruelty while they know, surely, that this sort of criminalization will not end houselessness, will only deepen and exacerbate it. I have to say that that also means that there are obviously propertied interests, be they business improvement districts, be they stakeholder associations, loud housed citizens, who are also pushing for this and who are not only complicit in it, but who are driving these forms of criminalization. At the same time in LA, we've seen organizations that give us a lot of hope from K-Town for All to many others, to now the broader collection of organizations that have formed Services Not Sweeps, Street Watch LA, that are organizations and movements, often of young people, who are fighting alongside their unhoused neighbors and who are also asking for accountability around the use of public money and the ways in which resources are being spent on criminalization rather than housing. So coming from my particular background, I am hearing the language. I am understanding that there's the barriers with the economic inequalities. There's the barriers with the levels of academics. How do we get these conversations into homes like the one that I grew up in, where we're more knowledgeable about what it is that we can do, knowing that this is where the impact is being felt the most? 
I think these conversations have been precisely in those homes, that those are the homes that have experienced the direct impact of racialized policing. They've experienced the direct impact of policies such as One Strike and You're Out that was meant to quite literally deny public housing residents all civil and constitutional rights. I think the question then becomes how that lived experience of precarity can be mobilized to transform policies and programs. And I feel that this bigger endeavor that the two of you who have been leading on Housing Justice LA is precisely that, that it sort of centers that lived experience, but also ensures that we keep our eye on the programs and policies that have not only been creating this precarity, but that also need to be changed. I think for me in Los Angeles, one challenge is what are the networks and alliances and institutions that can be built to create those connections? Because in many ways, even with, say, the universities, be it USC or UCLA, we are often at a great distance from, and I'm geographically, but also at a great political and um, emotional distance, I would say, from those lived experiences. So we've got to learn to center those lived experiences in the work we do. And we've got to think about how we can learn from those experiences, but also how we can use the resources we have around research to demonstrate that those lived experiences are important stories, but those stories come together in certain patterns of exclusion and discrimination. And I think showing those patterns is absolutely crucial to changing programs and policies. I do want to put a plug in for community organizing, because I think you're right that these ideas and conversations start with the people most impacted, but it does take a level of organizing, and organizing costs money. Organizing does not happen organically. Um, so if we have philanthropic partners who are listening to our podcast, I do just want to say it's really important to invest in those models of community organizing. And Edgar Villanueva has written his fantastic book about decolonizing wealth and how do we use the resources that are available to invest in the people with lived experience to connect to their communities and turn what might be a conversation around a kitchen table into a movement. And I think this has been very much on the mind of the organizers and activists that I've had the privilege to get to know here in LA. And it's why we formed the Activists in Residence program. I think we need to think about what that ecosystem of support is for organizers and activists many of whom do this work on a volunteer basis, many of whom are not only burnt out, but are criminalized, are seen as militant and angry, are seen as those who must be silenced. I feel very strongly that the public university has a very important role in supporting that kind of organizing and activism, not just in amplifying the voices of the wealthy and the powerful, but in fact thinking about voices that need support. And that support is financial support, as you note, and it's other kinds of support. I think the challenge is, and I recently gave a talk 
called Decolonizing Philanthropy? Question mark at a conference on racial capitalism organized by the Neighborhood Funders Group. And it was precisely um, a reflection on the ways in which many of the philanthropic structures we have in this country, and that was a talk focused on national organizations of philanthropy, have sought to support movements while taking the fire out of those movements. Not simply co-opting them, but seeking to make them into polite entities. Um, Respectability politics, right? And that simply won't do. So we've got to think about how we can nurture an ecosystem of organizing that respects the agendas and those agendas that come out of lived experience without necessarily imposing agendas of power on them. We like to end our conversations talking about what is at the heart of housing justice. For you, what would you like to see really be lifted up in the housing justice framework? For me, housing justice is in the simplest form about the possibility of housing justice, which again in its simplest form is about the right to housing. But the right to housing is not just about the right to shelter. It's about housing as a full experience a way of being in the world and that fullness of housing is something more than shelter and I think very much speaks to all that is connoted by the word home so it is also the right to home the right to remain the right to remember but I mean the word right in something more than the ways in which rights have been enacted in the U.S. So when I mean the right to housing or the right to home or the right to remain as the core of housing justice, I also mean that home and housing are public goods and that those rights are not conditional. Too often in the United States, particularly for communities of color, for women, for those who are marginalized in other ways, rights are conditional. You've got to behave in a certain way and then you get this right. If you do this, you lose this right. It's Rights are conditional, they're punitive, they are often temporary. So when I use that term right, I don't simply mean right as in a conventional liberal sense. I mean it in the full sense of social rights and what um, for a while in this country was envisioned as human rights as the very foundation of American democracy, not just of a global agenda of human rights. This has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ananya. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. I reached out to Andrea Garcia to find a poem to end today's episode with. Andrea is a doctor, activist, and local Native leader. Andrea recommended the poem City Indians by Kelly Caballero, who is a local Tongva activist. We'll have a link to a video of the poem on our website. I'm grateful to the local Tongva people whose land I live and work on. I'm grateful for their stewardship of this land before it was called Los Angeles, before there was even a concept of homelessness, and for their ongoing struggle to protect their sacred sites. They call us city Indians, urban Indians, as if our identity is first tied to the concrete rather than the bones of our ancestors who lie beneath it. 
like we aren't collecting bits of dust just to hold the earth in our hands once again. Trying to be heard above the screams of four million people, only to be drowned out again by the noise and hunger of a machine that knows no rest. Beyond the glamour and fiction lies the sinister truth. Los Angeles, City of Angels, is a city founded by murderers and thieves disguising themselves as such. They call us city Indians, urban Indians, as if we had a choice in the making of it all, like they didn't try ripping us from the root to prevent us from flourishing. Take Spanish last names, learn the Lord's Prayer, hide within ourselves, be the colonizer and the colonized like murder or assimilate wasn't the only option. So don't call us city Indians or urban Indians. We are Tongva. This is Tovangar. And Los Angeles, city of angels, sits on stolen land. We hope that you'll keep listening. We hope that you'll subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends, tell other people about the podcast. We also are going to have a question and answer episode later in the season. So we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions you have. We have the email address, housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Send us any questions you have so that we can answer your questions later in the season. And feel free to send us any comments or ideas as well. The Housing Justice LA podcast is made possible by a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation. The podcast is produced by Bill Lance with intro music provided courtesy of Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and amazing work on the CSH Speak Up program.